hey, uh, we're still in this little series right now about paradoxical pursuits because Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven is filled with paradoxes. Apparent things that when you first look at them seem like, wait a minute, those two don't really go together until you dive deeper into them and you realize, oh, I see where he's going with that. He's got kingdom principles that are very different than the world's principles, and it makes our lives so much more purposeful and meaningful if we'll live by those principles. But he wants to teach us in a way that makes us hungry to dive deeper. That's why he taught in these parables. So here's a quick story to get us thinking about this concept of losing to find, because that's one of the principles that Jesus teaches us. Um, back when I was in seminary, we were in Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, I was hired by a guy who was getting ready to do a, what we would now call an audio book. He called it a talking book back then. And his publisher had gotten permission from the original author for him to do the audio version of it, and he wanted some underscoring music to add to heighten the different places that he had talking about it. So he had this connection with a guy who had a brand new instrument. It was called a synclavier. That was back in 1984, 85. And it was so brand new that it really hadn't been continually developed to the point that it was super user friendly. And what I mean by that is that there were certain things that you had to follow certain steps. You remember the old computers where you could blow things up if you didn't follow the right steps? Well, the guy gave me a little tutor, tutorial, just a very quick, here's how you do it and set me down in front of that thing. I had composed some actual music on real staff paper in pencil, but those were my sketches, my notes. And then I was gonna go on to this instrument because they had all these sampled sounds that you could choose from. The cello sounded rich and full and like a real cello, and they had some other kinds of flutes and stuff that sounded very medieval, and this book kinda had a medieval flavor. And so I was excited to experiment with it and come up with some things that were an improvement from what was on the page. And I worked and worked and came up with what I felt was a really good first pass on the first chapter of this book. And I was trying to think, now, what was it he told me about saving this stuff? Um, it was something about that you had to save it back to sine waves because they didn't take much data. And there was this great big Mac computer on the floor that you would think could hold 17 cars worth of information now. But back then, that was, you know, you, it was some fat files, so to speak. And then he said, so what you got to do is save it that way first. And then when you're ready to record, then you go to this eight-track recorder over here, the reel-to-reel, -reel, and you turn that on and hit record. And then you re-enter all the numbers, keep track of all the different tracks that you're going to load into each one of those so that you know which samples you're playing out because they take an enormous amount of memory. Then you play that onto the eight-track. That's how you record it. I said, got it, no problem. <laughs> I didn't got it, because when I had finished all that first chapter of stuff, I said, okay, what do you save about saving? Let's see, there's this uh, record button on there, and then I'm going to hit save over here, right? Everything went blank, and there was silence, and the 8-track was just going, no sound was coming out of it, and I thought, what did I do? So I called him up on the phone, because he's in another building, I said, what have I done? I said, where is it? He goes, it's out there in the ether. I can't recover. No, you can't recover. <laughs> All that work. But you know what happened? I took a walk. I got something to eat. I stretched a little bit. 
I prayed a lot, got back to work again, and this time I had a written list of the things I was supposed to do to make sure that I was recording it correctly. But what happened was the next time I went back to start recreating what I had just come up with, I had new ideas of how to improve what I'd done the first time, I had a few different samples that I wanted to add in here or there, and I figured out how to use a couple of things I didn't know how to use the first time, including some things that would do a slight retardando and slow the music down just when I needed to, and then come back up with an ah tempo and hit it again hard. So what I came up with the second time around was actually quite a bit better than what I would have come up with the first time around. So I guess in a sense, I sort of failed forward, if you want to say that. But here's the thing. Here's where it ties into Jesus' teaching. I lost something, but what I found was better than what I lost. All right. Now, that's so simplified that it goes much deeper than that, and you'll see why when we get into this. I also read a few years later from a guy who had saved an entire book manuscript on his computer, a laptop. And then he drove to a city where they had a lot of smash-and-grab crime going on, and somebody smashed one of his windows in his car and stole his laptop. And he said, you know, people kept telling me, it's only 99 cents for the iCloud every month. You could have had that backed up. And he says, I wouldn't want to spend 99 cents. So what happened? He lost the entire manuscript. So I didn't feel nearly as bad about that one little lost chapter of work that I had done because I realized it could have been much worse. But Another story, true story, and this is also propelling us a little deeper into this losing to gain. This one was from a pastor from the Chicagoland area, Wheaton to be specific. Matt Woodley is his name. And he had some partners in another country like we have been enjoying with people like our pastor Prediston over in Haiti in the Dominican Republic. And his guy was from Nigeria, Africa. And he said the pastor's name was Mukan, but he went by uh, Brother Mark. To everybody from America that went over there because that's what we do and he said that brother Mark's car broke down when he was in a small village in northeastern Nigeria and he, his car really broke down so he had to walk a little bit to get into this village and then he was asking if he could find somebody that would help him get his car to a garage and as he was walking around looking for that he noticed wow this is a neat little village and there are lots of families tons of kids I may have to come back here someday then he finally found somebody to help him. It turns out he needed an entire rebuilt engine in that car. He got it done. He got back to his hometown. And then, less than two months later, that engine went bad too. He had to get another rebuilt engine in that car. And instead of whining about it, and instead of running around beating his head against a brick wall and screaming and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? He said, well, I think, God, you are trying to get my attention. I should have gone back to that village the first time. And he told Matt Woodley, his American friend, this story. And he says, so I realized God was really trying to tell me, no, you need to go back to that village and you need to start a new church because there are people there who need to hear about the life-changing gospel and the change that happens when we get to know Jesus really well because he changes us in so many wonderful ways. And he said, Matt, being the typical American, he said, well, if God wanted to get your attention that way, couldn't he have taken out a couple of water pumps instead of an engines? And he said, Brother Mark looked at me like, you silly American. How long must I put up with you? Because for Brother Mark, it was not about the cost of the engines. It wasn't about a loss at all. It was all about 
the life-changing power of the gospel, and he knew that there was something far more worthwhile, more valuable in those engines, and that was the gospel that he needed to get to those people out there. And Matt said, so I was kind of put to shame, and I realized that God was teaching me a lesson through this guy's faith as well. But isn't that something how God can get our attention sometimes through loss, and we get to think about things in a way that we might not have thought about had it not been for that loss? Well, are we happy about sacrifice? We have a lot of teaching, especially in America today, and a lot of the stuff that I've heard growing up was sort of a, a drudgery style of loss, a kind of, you have to sacrifice for the kingdom. That's how you know that you're a true disciple, because you're going to be giving stuff up all the time. In fact, I knew one missionary, they were getting ready to go on the field, and the person had a really nice keyboard, kind of like the one we have on our platform right now is really nice. Did all kinds of stuff, had sample sounds, had a sequencer. It was very expensive. But she felt like for her to really truly sacrifice and get out on that field, she needed to sell everything that meant something important to her. And she sold that keyboard and went over into the mission field. And that's because that she was taught that way. You just have to give stuff up. That's how you prove to Jesus, I mean business. I'm serious about this. What she didn't know is that God would resurrect that musical talent and she would wind up using it in a myriad of ways after she got to the mission field because that's how God had gifted her. So we, we tend to think of that in a sort of a drudgery kind of way. I remember being a kid after I'd accepted Christ and then I went to a, a retreat and those are places where God speaks loudly and clearly sometimes because we get quiet enough and we're out at this campfire and the pastor had preached and taught and I was just listening for the Holy Spirit and I said, okay, God, here's the deal. I get it. I'm supposed to follow you wherever he leads, I'll go. And I'll go wherever you want me to go, even if it's deepest, darkest Africa. And I said it with kind of a, okay, I guess if I have to, I have to. And I told him that, not knowing that several decades later, he would send me to Zimbabwe, and I would have one of the most life-changing, exhilarating, fun experiences of ministry that I've ever had in my life. Wish I could go back. And I think about that childhood um, vision of what I thought sacrifice was supposed to be. And I missed the point. I have really shifted in my thinking about that, especially based on this paradoxical principles that Jesus has for us. It's easy for us to become sort of spiritually masochistic. Masochism is where we actually derive a little pleasure from our pain, you know. And I've met some people who just weren't happy unless they were unhappy. <laughs> you know the type? It's easy for us to develop that kind of thing. I have to do this because it's my duty. And I know God knows I'm serious. So we can be singing, He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I'm sacrificing everything, so He has made me glad. And I've seen some people that kind of come across that way just a little bit. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. In fact, one of the fruits of the Spirit, which, as we know from our study about the fruits of the Spirit, means a character quality of Christ Himself, is joy. He wants us to be filled to overflowing, bubbling over with the joy of the Spirit, which means He never intends for us to sacrifice until it hurts so that we can walk around being miserable. That's not what His giving to get means. The Apostle Paul picked up on that. He even prayed for fellow believers that they would be filled with the kind of joy that comes after we have lost things that kept us from true joy so that we were filled to overflowing with God's true joy. Another caveat, he's not saying that we're never going to lose things as Christians. 
A lot of Christians I know have been through a lot, and they've lost a lot. Some people have lost loved ones. They've lost property. They've lost a lot of stuff. And yet, there's something even more valuable than all that stuff which they discovered. Sometimes we don't know Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. That's been attributed to Dwight L. Moody. I don't know if he was the first to say it. I like it. I didn't make it up, but I think it fits. Romans 15 says this, where Paul's talking about this. He says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you, believers, completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Now, I've noticed, too, that there are some people who have that kind of, I'm going to sacrifice because Jesus is going to know that I'm a serious disciple. And they kind of put a chip on their shoulder, and they sort of become self-fulfilling prophets. Because they think, if I'm making enough people angry at me, if I have enough opposition, that's just proof that I'm doing the right thing. And so they go around with this chip on their shoulder as if to say, come on, put them up, put them up. And the minute somebody comes against something they have to say, regardless of what tone they were going to say it in, then they say, see, just proves my point. They're wrong. I'm right. I'm all for Jesus. Can you see that there's an attitude that can come into play here that's not joyful? And it's not very loving? It happens. That happened to a friend of mine. His father was a preacher. His name was Tim. I stood for hours along the soccer field sidelines when my son and his son were on the same team together. And we did some travel stuff because both of them tried out. They were on the Ann Arbor Arsenal for a while, and then they wound up trying out for the Rochester Lightning, and they both made that one, and so we were traveling. So Tim was driving. I was uh, white-knuckling it because he was a fast driver all the way to Florida for a tournament. And then the boys were in the back snoring, of course, because that's what happens when dads drive for the tournaments. Can I get an amen, soccer parents? And so Tim started talking about his life, and he said, yeah, my dad was a, a preacher, so I'm a PK, preacher's kid. And he said, uh, we moved around all the time because my father only lasted about 18 months. I think the longest he ever lasted was 18 months at any given place. And I said, why is that, do you suppose? He said, well... I witnessed, because I was a kid looking up at what he was doing, I witnessed that he kind of developed this attitude of opposition so that he became feeling like he was Jesus and everybody else was the Pharisees. And he had this chip on his shoulder that he would just cause people to have all this opposition and he would blow everything up by the end of 18 months and he'd have to move somewhere else. He said, I don't think they understood that what he was trying to share was this gospel of a God who loves us enough to be able to sacrifice on our behalf. And so we just moved all the time. And that was, that was their life. He got used to it. But he never developed the ability to get along with others to say, I love you enough to stay in here long enough to put up with some of this stuff that you're bringing at me. And that's hard to do. That's hard to do even in our own families sometimes. Again, don't say amen to that one. But it's tough. It's tough. And when you read Simon Peter's letters in the New Testament, you can see how he used to be very oppositional that way. I mean, it's easy for us to get oppositional. I find myself having that creep into my life sometimes. But the transformed Simon Peter, not the one who withdrew his sword and cut off Malchus's ear when they came to arrest Jesus, but the transformed Simon Peter said this, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. Which stands to reason that that means that you're living in a way that they can see that hope expressed a living hope, but do this with gentleness and respect. That's the Simon Peter after he had been transformed a great deal by Jesus Christ. Now, Simon Peter didn't write, 
Give an answer for your belief system and always do this as though you are a steamroller and the person you are speaking with is the road. He didn't say that. He said do it with gentleness and respect. Love these people. Show them compassion. Be patient enough with them so they can see that you actually mean what you're talking about when you say that God is love. So Jesus' teaching about losing and finding shows us what turns unhealthy sacrificing and perhaps a distorted view of that that we may have seen around us or been raised by into a healthy kind of self-denial. We learn to deny the things that keep us from encountering Christ in a personal, fulfilling, joy-filled way. Jesus shows the why of losing, and that's important. We've got to have that motive. Why would we give all this stuff up? It's because we found something that's so much more valuable. That's why. It's to gain something better than you lost. Think of it this way. God is this great, big, powerful man trying to wrestle away a nice, chewy doggy treat from a scrappy dog. And guess who is the scrappy dog? We are. We're the scrappy little mutt. And it could be our own sense of entitlement in that treat, or it could be our pride or our covetousness because we're jealous of somebody else's experience or situation. Or it might be that we have kind of our own need to be in control of our own little portion of our world. And that means that sometimes we're fearful of losing control, which means that the pride rises when our fear rises and we're trying to cover over that fear. There's any number of things that we're trying to grab a hold of and God's trying to wrestle it away. And so this unhealthy attitude pops up. We find ourselves grieving over something that we lost and we want to cling to something. <laughs> and we don't want to let go of that attitude because loss does that to us. It's a grief process. And it's like we're hearing God saying, drop it. Drop it, leave it, leave it. And that's the way we can be. And I know that because I've experienced those kinds of pains and those kinds of, no, I'm gonna, I want to keep my mat on for a little while, God. I had a brother-in-law used to say that. Are you done being mad? No, I want to keep my mat on for just a little while longer. We can all get that way from time to time. I experienced a couple of losses last week, and I was stomping around the house working through it, and I pray loudly, and Joy knows that when I'm praying, sometimes I'm praying out loud, and it's not to her. I'm not mad at you, dear. I'm just processing this stuff, and I'm angry right now. And then God says, leave it, drop it, and I'm saying, okay, I get it. So he speaks to all of us that way, including me. More valuable than anything. We sing songs about that stuff. Jesus teaches with a parable to paint a significantly different picture about losing and finding than we have from what we might have grown up with. It's found in Matthew 13, 45 and 46. Again, Jesus says, do you see that he's on a roll here? It means he's been continuing to speak about this particular topic, and now he's coming out with a great parable. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's out on the lookout for choice pearls. And when he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Now this merchant stumbles across something, and because he's a merchant, he knows a good value when he sees one. Um, my grandfather was an antique buyer. He had a little antique store in Arizona. He could tell the difference between a really good antique and just a sort of a knockoff or you know, this is vintage, but it's not really good. It's not very valuable. He knew the difference. So this merchant knew the difference between just regular old pearls and a pearl of great price. Really valuable. And he, he found it. And so what does he do? He goes home. He sets up a little Zoom call with this guy that he knows, a broker friend. And he says, sell. How much to sell? Everything. Sell it all. Why would he do that? 
Why would he give up everything? Because he wants something that's more valuable than all the other stuff that he had accumulated to that time put together. He knew that everything else combined was worthless compared to that pearl of great price. When he found that one great treasure, all of his priorities shifted. They just got turned upside down. Some things he once thought were really important and really valuable were suddenly not that valuable anymore. Now here's some things that we learn again from the Apostle Paul, this time in Philippians 3, about this idea that what Jesus offers, especially in himself, is so much more valuable than anything else we can choose. There's nothing better than... We just sang that, didn't we? Sacrifice doesn't mean spiritual masochism. Paul chastised some legalists who were sort of spiritual masochists in his day. He says in Philippians 3.2, Look out for those dogs. He said, look out for those evildoers. He didn't have kind words to say for people who were that kind of spiritual masochism. We're supposed to sacrifice until it literally hurts. Wow, Paul, don't hold back. Tell us how you really feel. Why would he say that? Because there were some who were teaching that you had to sacrifice until you literally hurt. You had to hurt yourself until God would know that you were serious. And he says, that's not at all what Jesus was teaching us. So stop it, early believers. Don't go down that road. Beware of those evildoers. They're teaching you something that's a false teaching. Don't buy into that. Before Christ, Paul's life was... Now, if we were in a modern-day testimony service, we might hear, oh, and before Paul met Christ, his life was a mess. It started with a gateway drug, and then he graduated to something more serious, and before long, he was hooked on the hard stuff. And then he started uh, stealing from his own family just to be able to make ends meet because he needed to buy more drugs. And then he was down and out, and he was on the street, and he was under a bridge, and all of a sudden, he wakes up one day, and he discovers that God removed all that from my life. That's a, a real testimony. You know, it was like, top that testimony when you hear testimonies when I was in youth. And I'd say, I was five and then I met Jesus. The end. <laughs> I didn't have one of those testimonies. He saved me from all that stuff instead of out of all that stuff. And I'm grateful for it. But Paul had a great life, or so he thought. And he tells us about it in Philippians and stuff. It's really good to hear about that. He's saying, you know, I had a good education. In fact, I had two degrees from two prominent universities. That would be statement that he might use today. It was from two different rabbis that would teach, Hillel and Gamaliel. He's influential. He had power. He had prestige. People looked up to him. When he spoke, people listened. He could point out people, and people would say, you want me to arrest him? Yeah, let's arrest him. So there's some of that stuff. But he had it good until he didn't, until the Holy Spirit stopped him in his tracks, turned his life upside down, blinded him with a great light, on the road to Damascus, and he couldn't see, and he couldn't eat for three whole days. And then some dude he'd never met before comes up and lays hands on him. Whoa, what are you doing, dude? You know, let's pray for him. And all of a sudden, it was like scales were just falling from his eyes. He could see clearly, not just physically at this point. Now he could see what he had been doing. And all that he thought was once valuable just vanished. Because he thought, oh, yeah, Jesus it's been you that I've been persecuting. So he goes from a life of having wealth and influence and power and control and position and good clothes and all that stuff to a life filled with threats 
and beatings and shipwrecks and prison sentences and days when he wakes up that he's not sure when he's going to get the next meal. Maybe he goes hungry for a while. And he's not sure in some days that he's going to even live to the end of the day. And he says, and I want you to join me on this journey. <laughs> Why would he say that if he goes from a life of prestige and power and all that stuff to a life like that? And yet he says, but I want you to join me. This is a better life. Because clearly, something changed in Paul's attitude because he found something far more valuable than all that other stuff. After a life lived for Christ, Paul says, I once thought these things were valuable, Philippians 3, 7, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Remember the treasure that the merchant stumbled across, that pearl of great value? Well, that was a great analogy by Jesus, but how do we apply that analogy to the Apostle Paul? What was so great for him? It was Christ. It was Jesus himself. Jesus is that pearl of great price, and Paul knew that. Everything else, he says in Philippians 3.8, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord and Savior. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as, and we use a nice word in most of our translation, garbage. You know, when we take out the garbage on Monday nights, it's in a nice little pristine bag, hefty, 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 and we put it on the curb. That's not the word that Paul is using here. It's a nasty word. It means like, dung. It's a bad word. And so when he's saying garbage, think about the hairy junk that builds up in the trap under your sink. You know, it's foul. He says all that stuff, that prestige and all the stuff that I had, it's like it's foul. It's like sink dung. That's not even a term, but I just used it. All that stuff that used to make me feel important was unimportant anymore. I was not interested in that as being my identity at all. It doesn't matter. For Paul, after he met Jesus, he couldn't live without knowing that everything was being done for him. To live is Christ. And for him, he even said, to die is gain. So all that is worthless. He discovered what Jesus gave him was so valuable that even the most valuable things that used to be valuable to him were like garbage. Let me show you the second half of Romans 15, 13. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the second half of 15, 13 in Romans. So when is the then in that? It's what happens just before that. We overflow with confident hope through the Spirit's power when God fills us up with joy and peace because we trust in Him. Even when we're doing this on a microcosmic daily scale, we might start to stray from that sense of peace because we've lost something and we're frustrated and we're angry and we're trying to figure it out. And then we go into the Word or we listen to some good worship music and God reminds us there's nothing better than you. And He restores that confident hope and that sense of peace that we need to have restored. It's a daily experience. It's not just a one and done. Have you ever met somebody who abounded in hope? who overflowed in confidence in God's promises, even though they had had a lot of losses in their life. I thought of several that just came to my mind immediately. Florence Pollock, I've mentioned her before. She had some sort of a, an illness when she was a young child, depression-era kid. They didn't have great medicine back then. A botched surgery made them think they needed to remove a couple of ribs for some reason so they could get to what they needed to fix. And so she walked crooked the rest of her life. She couldn't get a deep breath. She had lots of pain. And yet she was this beautiful, 
effervescent, glowing person who is always abounding in hope and always praising Jesus and pointing people to Jesus, even though she had a lot of loss in her life. Ed Litton, good friend of mine, a Christian stand-up comedian in college. I went to the same college uh, with Ed, funny guy, quick wit. And he became a pastor of a very influential church down south. And his wife, Tammy, who was also so gifted, she played oboe in an orchestra, and she taught the kids music, and they built a huge church. First time that they were working in church was in Arizona after college and seminary, and they built that church up from next to nothing to just overflowing. And it was the kids' ministry, and especially kids' music. And Tammy was a big part of that. She was the backbone of their music program. Several years later, after he became pastor at that church down south, I think it was in Alabama, she was killed in a car accident. Driver crosses the center line. Boom, Tammy's gone. We were shocked. I mean, we were just in shock. How can Ed even go on without Tammy? We didn't find out about it until quite some time after it had happened. And so I called Ed, asked him how he was doing. He said, you know, it was a season of great grief. And it lasted longer than I would have liked. It was tough. But it was also a season filled with great grace. Because God just kept revealing himself. And he kept showing up time after time after time. And he said, Jesus is more valuable than anything. And so even though I still live with that loss, Jesus continues to make my life mean something. Dean Jones, I mentioned him before, the actor. Remember the Disney films, Herbie the Love Bug, and some others? Well, he went through some ups and downs, really strayed from the Lord and had an addiction problem and stuff. And then he just found Christ. And when he found him, he was radically transformed. And then he was saying, by reading through the scriptures and realizing what he had in Christ, he said, God, if you were to take my house with a fire tonight, I'd still praise you. <laughs> Be careful what you say. He lost his house in a fire. And yet he was there. They, they thought about doing an investigation because when some of the firemen showed up to investigate, he was sitting in the ashes praising God. <laughs> I can imagine they might be thinking, oh, why would you? I don't know. But he said it, was, it meant nothing. All that stuff that we'd accumulated, it was nothing compared with the surpassing greatness of Christ. Because what Christ gives us is overflowing with hope, and it's forever. Not only does he give us hope to make it through these days on earth, but it's forever. And I had all that. So when we lose, we still have so much to gain. And I don't know where you are. Maybe you have been through a series of losses. Maybe you're in a loss right now. I don't know. God knows. I just know that in my own experience and based on what Peter writes about and Paul writes about and what Jesus lived to exemplify that for us, you can trust God. Trust Jesus through whatever loss you may have had because he is so much more valuable. He is the pearl of great, tri of great price. So let's pray and ask God to show us how we can continue to trust him more because there's nothing more valuable than him. Father, thank you so much for your word that continues to speak to our real needs. And thank you for being so alive and so real. And for your Holy Spirit that quickens our hearts and causes us to say yes in our spirit because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, is also saying yes to a truth. We want the real truth, your truth, to line up in our minds and hearts so that we can truly trust you even when we feel frustrated or angry or fearful or because we've had a loss, we don't know which way to turn next. God, help us to trust you more fully. 
Because there's nothing more valuable than you. Nothing greater. And we're so grateful for that. We lift you up, and we thank you for allowing us to continue to walk in your steps and to trust you more fully. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.